Hello. Hi. Welcome to Truly Fabulously Monstrous. A podcast about true crime and cryptids. I am happy. And spooky things. I am half of your host and no longer trying to speak like Delilah after being shamed. I didn't mean uh, Hattie. Hattie James. <laughs> I didn't your other half of your host, Ace. I didn't mean to shame you. I was just taken off guard. It's been so long since I've seen you, Ace. It's That's not like... Been so long. Minutes, at least. Yeah. For the listeners who are listening to this in the days separating the uploads um you don't know this but ace and i are doing a marathon session to record our recording back to back yeah finale week yeah so so we got all of our like how was your week bantering done in the last episode although although during our 20 minute let's decompress before we get on to the next one break um so i've been reading webtoons and i follow two i follow yeah, I follow Exception and I follow True Beauty. And as we were recording, True Beauty's uh, newest episode was uploaded. Uh, so that one is about it's it's actually really famous in Korea to the point where it is now a, a live action show in Korea. Ooh, it's, um, congrats it's, to that artist. <laughs> yeah, it's about a, um, a it starts off when she's in high school. So a young girl who in middle school was bullied because of her looks, because she's, you know, she has problems with acne um, and a very round face. So she spends the entire summer between, I guess we would call middle and high school. Right. uh, Perfecting how to use double eyelid tape, how to put in colored contacts, how to contour, how to use concealer, how to do makeup. And she enters high school as a goddess the um see it's called true beauty in america but the other name for it is the advent of a goddess is it secretly a horror story no okay it's a love triangle. okay because i could go either way <laughs> well it's like she ends up it's so great. I don't want to ruin to anyone who wants to read it. I really yeah. suggest it. It's yeah. and it's funny because the artist will use memes and draw like <laughs> draw out the memes into the character. So it's like that that Nick Cage <laughs> face, but it's but it's the the oh, main character, that. but it's the main character doing it. So it in just throw that in every few episodes, and it's great. Um, but the the main plot is. She's kind of stuck in a love triangle between two friends who, like, in their adulthood, like, one is just rich and famous uh, because his father's a celebrity and he's beautiful, and the other is a K-pop star. And then it's funny. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. It's funny, though, because, like, I started reading it, and about as soon as I got to the part where they're talking about, like, the K-pop scene, uh, my husband starts listening to (laughs) K-pop. Or just complete coincidence. Like he doesn't know what I was. And the other one that I've been reading is ex, uh, Exception. It's done more in a um, True Beauty is very manga style. Yeah. Exception is a Scandinavian story. All right. And uh, I so like Scandinavian stuff. And the style kind of reminds me more of Scandinavia and the world in the fact that it's more chibi than actual uh-huh. fully detailed and it's cartoony. Um, and it's about the main character, um, whose name, why did their name just escape me? Okay. So Arcus, 
Arcus moves to a new school and Arcus is uh, assigned male at birth um, throughout the story as far as I've read so far um, also is cis but dresses like blonde dyed rainbow color hair really like feminine clothing and also is in the beginning of it secretly a famous fashion blogger who never shows their face named gold star star and they start at the school and um everyone is like picking on him and stuff like that and and the people who know that he's gold star is like why don't you just tell people you're gold star very hannah montana (laughs) very hannah montana very hannah montana but i like it because there's like a bunch of lgbt characters and proper representation and there's like a whole arc on a kid coming to terms with his sexuality and another uh sub arc about a um a girl coming to terms with um the fact that or like trying to get other people to accept the fact that she's a trans woman or trans girl because they're all teenagers um so it's really i like it they're, they're probably meant for more younger people not 30 year olds but that sounds but, fun yeah it's nice light reading the episodes take two minutes to read when they come out they come out once a week so meanwhile the webtoons i follow well, I follow a couple that are like not really serialized, like my giant nerd boyfriend. Cause I just that's just adorable. Um, but then uh, a couple that I follow uh, were like on hiatus. Actually, one of them had ended. They were like, "All right, I'm the story's done. We're done." And it was very sad. But it's it's called Carl, and it's about um, uh, it initially was just a couple comics about a. A, like a therapy wrote like a an android robot who was a therapist and they were like trying to do like a like a science project i guess about like can an ai like counsel humans even like without having sentience and like through some accident this therapy robot gains sentience oh and i don't know if they had the author had intended this to be like a serial story but it got so popular on webtoons that it just it became like this huge like overarching plot about like any other ai that this specific robot named carl interacted with would also gain sentience so he has like this there's like so it's like a virus kind of yeah so it's like he's got three siblings that are like heck yeah let's do fun things to like help humanity like one of them gets into like uh like environmentalism and trying to like find like sources of clean energy there's another one that's like uh trying to like salt crack the code of like why they've gained this sentence and then there's a fourth one that comes in that like ends up being like he's it's their sister and she ends up being like evil and like takes over it's started like to take over people's minds and like it had ended and it ended like kind of sad but like it was like a very bittersweet ending and then all of a sudden there's new episodes <laughs> he's like i'm back and i was like i'm so excited um so there's that one and then there's another one i'm following called little char and the gang and it's pokemon themed and all the characters in it it's like set in a pokemon a pokemon universe without humans it seems like all the characters they're very they're all like sentient pokemon and the three it's kind of very like coming of age stand by me the three main characters are the three starter pokemon from the original game so you got your Bulbasaur, your charmander your squirtle and they're like it's all like coming of age pokemon adventures and it's very cute 
but they're all and they've been like kind of updating more regularly and then they're just like very cute about they're like let's go on an adventure but like the charmander doesn't know how to use any of his firepowers yet so they're always like he's always getting picked on because he can't use ember or and then like they each each one like they have older siblings who are like the next evolution and then all the parents are like the final evolutions yeah they're very it's very cute so that's that's what i've been following on webtoon is um like a pokemon like 80s coming of age story (laughs) i just realized i should probably say the authors to the webtoons i just talked about yeah uh so except exception is by color b and true beauty is but i'm going to slaughter this it is a korean name um yaonji uh the ones i follow the my giant nerd boyfriend is fishball fishball is pretty popular uh that's a fairly uh well-known webtoon um the carl is by hussein treblosi and claudia z and then lil char and the gang is by nekoama yeah who i first found on tumblr and then they were like, I post on Webtoons now. And I'm like, excellent. I will I will subscribe to you. Oh, I've also been, um, there was one that was on hiatus that just came back, which is Let's Play, which is kind of like a love triangle uh, type one. And uh, one of the characters you can kind of tell is very loosely, loosely based on, well, it's kind of, he's kind of like a combination of a lot of like famous youtubers but you can kind of tell that initially he was based on markiplier (laughs) but so that's been running for a long time and it was on hiatus for a while and it has just come back so i've also been reading that and that is by mongi m-o-n-g-i-e that's also very good i've been i love the art style i just Mm, it's one of those who's like it's a love triangle will she go with the the youtuber guy or will she go with the ooh very suave and cute blonde businessman i'm like i don't want her with either of them i want the youtuber to reconcile with his uh estranged girlfriend because i think they're beautiful together and they just need to work through some stuff and like maybe go to counseling and i just plain don't like the blonde businessman i don't like him (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm very yeah I'm like right now with uh with True Beauty now I know that there's more episodes released elsewhere because when you go to the Wikipedia and you look at the episode list there's like five more five to ten more episodes than yep I currently can get and like with what oh, they're like that if you like subscribe like to their Patreon you get early access type either ones. that or because I think they have to be translated into English before they're uploaded to webtoons I think yeah. that there's just more in Korea right now um but where it's going right now it's like oh the so one of the the groups just broke up and now it's looking like um she might be going with the other one it's like no i don't like the other one (laughs) i just sent you a snapchat of what my cat's currently doing um as i am not paying attention to him and thus he will be passing away from not having attention oh i'm taking a screenshot of that (laughs) um speaking of like passing away uh because it is 10 15 at night and i know you have 12 pages of single spaced notes no 12 spaces pages of double spaced notes okay so one Eight six pages, pages. Of single space. it's actually 10 10 pages of single space i say double space shall we get started 
it's it's our season finale and you're doing a long crime a long crime a long con if you will oh a con i like well okay not so much a con more like a a heist a a a a burglary Mm. a theft yes is it the theft is it the 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 burglary i think it is it depends what do you think it is i'll find out (laughs) okay okay um Okay, so uh, this is uh, kind of regarded as one of, not the biggest, but one of the biggest um, losses of, like, scientific data and historical data. Uh, This is a museum heist that I'm going to be talking about, specifically a natural history museum heist. Oh, it's not the one I was thinking of. I was thinking of an art heist. That's on my list of potential things to do one day, too, unless you would like to cover it, because that is also very interesting how they got away with that for so long. (laughs) But no, uh, this is uh, going to be talking about the Edwin Rist and the theft of, I don't really know what to call it. He, He stole a lot of biological specimens from the a branch of the London Natural History Museum in uh, Oh, I've been there. It's in Kensington. <laughs> um no, this branch is in Tring. Oh. Yeah, the Tring Museum. Okay, but before we get to the heist part of the story, um I'm going to lay down some background about uh the Victorian <laughs> back to the Victorian era. We spend a lot of time in the Victorian era in this podcast. Yes. Uh, specifically the Victorian habits of hunting and mounting absolutely every single animal they could get their greedy colonizing Victorian hands on. It's called a menagerie or a cabinet of curiosities and you will respect it as something awful. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In this case, actually, it was the collecting of scientific specimens for specifically for museums and scientific study. So specifically, I would like to give a little bit of background about Alfred Russell Wallace. Alfred Russell Wallace was a British naturalist, explorer, geographer, anthropologist, biologist, and illustrator. He is best known for being one of the OG originators of the theory of evolution through natural selection. In fact, he and Charles Darwin, independently of each other, came up with this theory of evolution at the same time. Ooh. So why doesn't he get the credit? Technically he does because they published, they jointly published papers on this. So Yeah, but like, no one remembers him. That's true because Darwin didn't, I don't know, Darwin was more gung-ho about it, I guess. It's like when we were having the conversation earlier today off the podcast about about like fucking Tim Burton. It's like if Tim Burton had any part in something, then not only do people go, oh, this is just Tim Burton, but everything that the other creators of that do outside of Tim Burton, people go, oh, that's Tim Burton. You're like, no. So Charles Darwin is the the Tim Burton of evolution. <laughs> but we're not talking about Charles Darwin, aside, aside from saying that Wallace and Charles Darwin were contemporaries and jointly published stuff about uh, natural selection. In fact, um, well, Wallace's paper was what then prompted Darwin to publish his On the Origin of Species. Uh, he did extensive field work in the Amazon River Basin and then later in the Malay 
archipelago, which is now uh, Malaysia and Indonesia. Uh, and it's here that he spent eight years observing wildlife and seeking what was a very highly prized specimen of the time, namely the bird of paradise. He did some pretty important things in his uh, fields, aside from being the co-discoverer of natural selection. Uh, his contributions to the theory of evolution include the concept of aposematism or warning coloration yeah. in animals uh, that the developed trait to warn predators that they're poisonous or toxic, like the dart frogs that are like real bright colors and that, that they basically say, don't eat me, you'll die. Yes. Look how bright and colorful I am. Don't eat me, you'll die. So that's, uh, he He kind of like came up with a lot of theories about that. Uh, he came up with the hypothesis of reinforcement, which is a process of uh, speciation, wherein natural selection increases the reproductive isolation between two populations of a species by encouraging the development of barriers against hybridization. This is now somewhat referred to as uh, the Wallace effect. Part of that. Yeah, like you'll have, it's kind of like the how people always like incorrectly say, well, humans evolved from monkeys. No, humans and monkeys evolved from a earlier like parent species and there was a split and humans evolved one way and monkeys evolved another way. Yeah. So like humans and monkeys are both related to this parent species that we don't really know of. So the the reinforcement hypothesis, like that speciation, that natural selection is that bar- like that barrier between humans and monkeys that like pushed them to to evolve differently and then keep evolving in their own directions. And then uh, he also wrote in 1904, he wrote a book called Man's Place in the Universe, which was the first serious work by a biologist to determine the likelihood of life on other planets. Okay. It was also He was also one of the first scientists to seriously exposit whether or not there was life on Mars. Some other cool things about him. Uh, these really don't have anything to do with the crime I'm going to talk about. I just thought... Okay. He's an interesting historical character, and he like he and the things he discovered is relevant to the heist. So I kind of just want to be like, he's a cool guy, and here's what he did, and here's why he's important. He was highly critical of the unjust social aspects of capitalism in the 19th century in Britain. He was an advocate for spiritualism, which kind of strained his relationships with his scientific peers. He very likely came up with his thoughts of uh, natural selection while he was horribly delirious with a malaria induced fever i just thought okay. that was kind of cool it's like i came up with thing that's gonna change science as we know it i am so high from fever right now <laughs> uh he was uh one of the first prominent scientists to raise concerns over the environmental impact of human activity or Rather, he was one of the first white European scientists to raise these concerns because I'm pretty sure scientific minds of all the other indigenous cultures that have lived places for centuries had already cracked that nut, <laughs> but are then like, you know, discounted by the scientific community of, of Europe because colonialism and racism. He was, uh, he was opposed to vaccines. <laughs> then in the early 1800s, oh, he was drawn hard. into a debate regarding mandatory smallpox vaccinations. His uh, original argument was that it was a matter of personal liberty. And then after studying the statistics that were provided by 
other anti-vaccination activists, he began to question the efficacy of the vaccination. Okay, this is the 1800s. Germ theory was still kind of new, not universally accepted, blah, 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 blah. Like the human immune system was not very well understood. So they didn't know how the vaccine worked. They just knew that it kind of sometimes worked. In his research, he found instances where vaccine supporters had used questionable and falsified statistics to support their arguments to the efficacy of the vaccine. He was also really anti-authority, so he was arguing more about the ethics involved rather than the vaccine itself being effective. Yes, but uh, as somebody who's very, very pro-vaccine and it's not about it is not about someone's personal rights and liberties. It is about the the general well-being of yes. the greater common community. But they didn't um, know about herd immunity then yet. This is still like they didn't know that was what happened. I still feel like I can see some anti-vax. Oh no, get uh, vaccinated. Vaccines yeah. are good. Vaccines are safe and effective. And if you don't okay, this does not apply to people who for medical reasons or because they're too young cannot get vaccinated safely. Like this does not apply to you. I understand that there are a lot of medical reasons that would prevent a person from being able to be safely vaccinated. That's fine. I'm talking about if you can be vaccinated safely and you choose not to, you're a jackass. (laughs) And I'm just saying, like, I can see those people going back to this fucko and being like, oh, look, Shake's Wikipedia printed page uh, that's a screenshot of Wikipedia from antivaxmom.net. <laughs> I, this guy proves it from what, something he said before we had modern science. You're like, really going to hate this next part. Oh, no. Another part of his article, because he was like a biologist and a naturalist, he dragged natural selection into the argument and said, Something along the lines of, should we really try to eradicate a deadly disease that is really good at killing humans? Like, really, really good at killing humans? Should we really be eradicating that? Joke's on you, Wallace. Smallpox is one of the few diseases we've actually eradicated because of vaccines. So, like, yeah. I then then have a note here that we already just touched on. Uh, This should not be a political statement. Vaccines are good. Stop putting children and any compunized people at risk because you read a Facebook post spouting some false information that has been disproven multiple times. Stop bringing back measles, you fucking plague rats. Okay, and we're moving on. <laughs> he, that's like the one thing that like I'm like, oh man, Wallace. Other than that, I love Wallace. Like that's the only thing that I'm like, Wallace, come on, man. But everything. No, like, I I don't care. Everything, every hey, good accomplishment he's he, had is now okay, out the window. He took, he took a bet from a flat earther in 1870 uh, who offered a 500 pound wager to anyone who could demonstrate a convex curvature in a body of water and our boy Wallace said bet and designed an experiment in which he basically set up two objects along a six mile stretch of river canal wherein both objects were at the same height above water and then mounted a telescope on a bridge at the same height above the water and then when he looked through the telescope one object appeared higher than the other thus showing the curvature of the earth uh, there was a third party, like objective judge of this wager, declared Wallace the winner. But John Hamden, the flat earther, refused to accept the result and proceeded to sue Wallace and launched a smear campaign against him. Wallace then proceeded to counter sue for multiple libel suits. 
So he was like, I will not have any of your flat earth nonsense here today, good sir. No, thank you. So uh, he was he was opposed to eugenics. That shouldn't be an exciting fact about someone. Uh, that should be a norm because eugenics is monstrous. You can't be pro a virus wiping out weak people and anti-eugenics at the same time. That's not how it works, good sir. Case closed. I will not be. Was, I, I will not be. I will not no, be I accepting know. criticism. You are correct. <laughs> However, he did not count the natural selection argument as eugenics. So therefore, that is eugenics. I know. We know that now. But then they did. It was the 1800s. That's no excuse. I'm just proving how cool this guy is. <laughs> Let me have one cool guy in the 1800s. You're not allowed to have any cool man ever. <laughs> Uh, like I said, uh, being opposed to eugenics should not be exciting of a fact, but it um, is because unfortunately an upsettingly large amount of Victorians and post-Victorians really, really, really loved eugenics. His uh, opposition was, okay, (sighs) his opposition to eugenics was that contemporary society was too corrupt and too unjust to allow any reasonable determination of who was fit or unfit. Yet he's so perhaps, determining that people who die of small... Per- so perhaps this is not the re- resounding rejection of eugenics in any kind of society, regardless of how just or uncorrupt is unethical and bad that I was hoping for. But at this point, I will settle for the small historical victories where they occur. I'm going to angrily eat a chip. So angrily I'm going to get the microphone, angrily eat a chip, and then I'm going to respond to that. He supported women's suffrage. He wrote a lot of papers and articles voicing his vociferous support of a women's right to vote. He was extremely against uh, fashion standards of the time that involved bird feathers and women's hats because a lot of bird species were pretty much wiped out because of the fashion industry and the fashion standard for everyone wanted feathers in their hats, parrot feathers, egret feathers, osprey feathers, ostrich feathers, fed like, no, like you want just like a pigeon feather? No, you have to have fancy, fancy feathers. You don't gonna, and it has to be the tail feathers. It can't be like feathers from, and you're just gonna pluck all the tail feathers, throw the rest of the bird away. But no, we want these feathers in our hats. And some hats even had whole dead birds on them. There were so many birds that were just wiped off the face of the earth because of fashion. And he was really against that. It was very detrimental to bird populations, and it, he was very, very, very vocally anti-fashion uh, standards that involved, like, the just absolute extinction of bird species. He was extremely anti-military and anti-war because of how much the war industry only benefited the wealthy, who had investment in the creation of machines used in war. Uh, he wrote in a, an essay in 1899, quote, All modern wars are dynastic, that they are caused by the ambition, the interest, the jealousness, and the insatiable greed of power and their rulers, or of the great mercantile and financial classes which have power and influence over their rulers, and that the result of war are never good for the people who yet bear all of its burdens. He published a book in 1898 called The Wonderful Century, Its Successes and Its Failures, about the developments of the 19th century. Uh, In the first half, he listed the major scientific and technological advances of the century and then spent the entire second half of the book 
railing against what he considered to be the biggest social failures of the century, including the destruction and waste of wars and arms races, the rise of the urban poor in dangerous conditions in which they lived and worked, the overly harsh, ineffective criminal justice system that failed any effort of reform, the abuses present in a mental health system insured through privately owned sanatoriums, the environmental damage caused by capitalism, and the evils of European colonialism. All in all, the end of the day, pretty decently cool dude, did a lot of cool stuff, although I still very wholeheartedly disagree with his stance on vaccines. <laughs> and he wasn't fully against eugenics. He's just like, oh no, eugenics is fine, but our country, our government- We're just too corrupt. Not- we yeah. can't do it because we're too corrupt of a society. I hate eugenics. I hate anti-vax people. think that- uh... So because uh, Wallace was a nature studies guy in the 1800s, a large part of his field of study included collecting specimens, and collect he did. By the end of his eight-year stint in the uh, Malay archipelago, is it archipelago or archipelago? Archipelago, I think. Okay. I've heard both. Maybe it is both. Let's see. The at the end of his eight year stint, though, the archipelago was uh, one hundred twenty five thousand creatures. That's how many specimens he collected, including beetles, butterflies, and birds. A lot of birds. He found his birds of paradise, and uh, his specimen collection included five species from the bird of paradise family, including the uh, kingbird of paradise. Hmm. After his death, his accumulated collections were sold to museums and private collectors. His field notebooks and the majority of the preserved bird skins are viewed as a method for continuous scientific discovery, as many of the specimens are of bird species that are now either extinct or extremely endangered, and thus the mounted skins are some of the only ways that they can be studied and learned about. Plus, they're the only real historical record we have that these species existed at all. And that's the same with a lot of like Darwin's stuff too, like Darwin's finches and the dodo, like the preserved dodo bird. Like they're the really yeah. the only proof that we have that that bird existed. And that's what it looked like. So the majority of Wallace's birds are housed at a branch of London's Natural History Museum located 30 miles northwest of London in Tring. The Tring Museum is where our story happens. In addition to Wallace's birds, there is also housed the largest zoological collection amassed by one person, Lord Lionel Walter Rothschild, who was a banker who sunk his family fortune into an attempt to collect a specimen of every species that had ever lived. You know, Noah's Ark style. (laughs) Picture like a Victorian big game hunter in safari clothes and a pith helmet, the big cartoony old time rifle. That's Rothschild. Uh, He collected kangaroos, dingoes, cassowaries, giant tortoises, zebras. Uh, Those were the animals that he collected alive to live on his family estate. Where they? uh, He had a cassowary. He had two cassowaries. Did he he have a death wish? Clearly, because he also had dingoes, Um, and I'm pretty sure he had some crocodiles. I think you can like contain a dingo. There's no containing cassowaries. Uh, and then, like, later when they all, I don't know, died of old age, or he probably shot them to death when the cassowary charged down, and he was like, I don't want to die! <laughs> um, they were then mounted and added to these collections. So between Rothschild's Menagerie and Wallace's species, the collections include nearly 750,000 birds, being representative of about 95% of all known species of birds that have existed in human Herb. history. Burbs. So the skins that are not on display in the museum proper are filed away in storage, all scientifically labeled, cataloged in taxonomic order, and are off limits to the public. 
you can see them, but you have to have, like, you have to be doing it for research purposes. You can't just show up and be like, I would like to see the birds today, good sir. Okay. You have to be like, hi, I'm like, I need to photograph this collection for a thesis that I'm writing. That's a, so that's a lot of birds in that museum. Yes. Specifically, that's a lot of feathers in that collection. Yes. So let's jump ahead to the summer of 2009. Oh no, oh no, oh no. I just connected dots and something you said before and something you just said, no, no, do not tell me. Ace, you'd better not tell me what I think you're about to tell me. In the summer of 2009, this is when the administrators at the Tring Museum discovered that one of the storage rooms had been broken into and 299 tropical bird skins had been stolen. No. Most of the skins stolen were of adult male birds. You know, the fancy, brightly colored ones with all the pretty plumage, while the more sedate colored skins of juveniles and female specimens had been left undisturbed. Among the missing skins were extremely rare, I looked up how to pronounce this and I forget, Quetzals? Pretty sure it's Quetzals. Contegas from Central and South America, Bowerbirds, Indian Crows, and the highly sought Birds of Paradise from the Wallace Collection. Oh no. The then director of science at the museum, Richard Lane, made a public appeal on the news declaring that the skins were of incredible historic and scientific importance and this is a quote from his press conference these birds are extremely scarce they are scarce in collections and even more scarce in the wild our utmost priority is working with the police to return these specimens to the national collections so that they can be used by future generations of scientists now let's pivot to learn about the other player in the story edwin rist from just outside of albany new york by all accounts a very soft-spoken young man uh, the the man who wrote the book about this, uh, Kirk Johnson, he, uh, the book about this whole incident is called The Feather Thief. He described uh, our Edwin Rist as, quote, a bit of an indoorsy kid who, quote, looked a little bit like Harry Potter with thick wire rimmed glasses. Okay. Both Edwin and his brother Anton were homeschooled and thus were able to dedicate large portions of their lives to special interests and hobbies that they wouldn't necessarily have had the time or the resources to do if they were in the public school system. Edwin was a musician, and we all know what happens to music in the public school system. We won't get into that. Um, He would later end up studying at the Royal Academy of Music, Uh, but he also, as a child, developed a niche interest in fly fishing lures. His father. Hey, hey, you see where this is going. Yes. His father was a uh, journalist and he was researching a story for Discover Magazine about the physics of fly casting. And in the process of this researching, uh, he showed his son an instructional video on uh, the specific type of uh, fly tying that uses feathers. And this video sparked something in him. Like I say, he's very picks a special interest, hyperfixates on it, learns everything possible that is to learn about this thing. So, so he's like, neurodivergent. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Uh, the, so this video about fly fishing lore is just something clicked in his brain and he was like, I must, I must know, I must learn, I must conquer this thing. I must, this hobby must now, I know everything about it. And after he viewed that video multiple times, he found himself rummaging through the family garage, searching for a fish hook and thread and anything he could use to try his hand at like tying a hackle. He used feathers from his mother's down pillow. Like that's, he's like, oh, anything, I must have anything. I must do this. Okay. 
So his uh, parents recognized the birth of a special interest. So he brought uh, both of his sons because his uh, uh, Edwin's brother also kind of got interested in this. So he took his sons to a local bait and tackle shop to get like the actual materials that they could use to learn how to begin tying flies in earnest. They got really good at it. They took classes, they spent hours practicing, and eventually they were winning fly tying competitions and attending fly tying conventions. Because as we all know, if there is a thing, there's absolutely a convention for it. Yes. And the, uh, like the fly tying community is very, like they are very serious. It's a very big community and they take it very seriously. Yes. These conventions are where Edwin was inevitably exposed to the salmon fly a very specific because like there's the tra- he was learning initially like with trout lures and those are I guess a little bit easier to learn like like uh people who weren't like super into it could probably learn how to tie a trout lure you don't need like a lot of special materials you could use pretty much any kind of feathers any kind of like uh like animal like elk fur I think they mm-hmm. use like just anything that'll like be a something appealing to a trout. Yeah. Uh, apparently with salmon flies is a very specific type of arranged lore involving like the wing patterns. And because you're not, you're not making an appealing like food to grab, like for trout fishing, you're making it look like something they want to grab to eat. Like, they're like, look, it's a little bug on the surface and the trout will go, Ooh, lunch. Whereas when you're fishing for salmon, you're fishing for salmon during the time when they are spawning up river to lay their eggs. So they're not eating what they're doing. You're making a lure that looks like something they want to attack because they want to protect the eggs they just laid. So you want something big, something bright, something colorful, something that'll move when you like, when you like shake your hook, something that they are going to launch themselves at and say, get away from my babies. So that's the salmon flies, like very specific, like colors, and there's lots of feathers involved. And so this is an even more specific special interest, just beyond regular fly tying. And Edwin began learning the history and the methodology of this very specific form of fly tying. And uh, the he began learning from a very uh, prominent person in the fly tying community, and he was teaching Edwin uh, the historical tying method. Um, but he was teaching him using substitute feathers because a lot of the historic feathers that were used by Victorian fly tires are hard to get. Some of them are illegal to get. And so he's like, we're going to use substitute feathers. They look just as good. It's just, if you're really into the history aspect of it, you're going to get that, but it's not the same kind of thing. But so he recognized like prodigy talent when he saw it. And after a couple lessons, he gifted Edwin with an envelope that contained approximately $200 worth of exotic bird feathers legally sourced because there are ways to legally obtain these feathers. And then he basically told them, he's like, like a mentor giving a student something to work towards, like, okay, kid, you got talent and with enough practice, you'll be a master at it. Don't use these feathers right away. Like use these as something to work towards. And then when you like have enough practice, you use these to make like your magnum opus. Yeah. So whatever his teacher's intentions were, Edwin caught that bug. And then from then on, all he wanted to use in his flies were exotic and historically accurate feathers. Oh no. Because uh, why do something... If you're not going to do it, just... Uh, he was a completionist, I guess. <laughs> like, video game logic must complete everything yes. the way it's meant to be. 
so he began doing what most teenagers do because at this point he's like 16 years old he began doing what most teenagers do to fund their niche hobbies like doing chores for your neighbors for extra money like i'll mow your lawn for some money yeah uh he started lurking on ebay auctions trying to obtain the feathers he needed like people doing estate sales like i found an old victorian hat with all these feathers in it ten dollars um, more than that actually so he's a 16 year old uh, relying on chore money and an allowance trying to win these ebay auctions so he was always getting outbid by veteran fly tires with the disposable income ego blow so he's stuck using substitute common feathers which uh it's not earning he wanted like he's like oh, this is not getting me the attention and admiration i crave because everyone's like oh cool you're really technically good at tying these flies but eh, come back like when you have like the actual feathers like eh, not that impressive we can all tie flies uh, <laughs> but also remember he's a crazy good musician like crazy good he, he's gonna go eventually in his future he's gonna go to like the royal academy like he's a flautist um actually i've seen a i've seen a video of him playing uh if you you can find it online there's a video of him playing metallica's master of puppets but playing all the different parts on different types of flutes interesting yeah he's really good <laughs> so i'm like oh man you can, oh what so he was admitted to the royal academy of music in london during his time there, he learned of the existence of this branch of the Natural History Museum in Tring and of the storage drawers filled with all these brilliant and colorful bird specimens out of sight of the general public in storage. Just sitting there, all those birds just there in storage. So he began to plan a scheme, a heist, if you will. No. Uh, he began by contacting the museum directly uh, with a story about needing to photograph the birds in storage uh, for his friend's PhD thesis. Like, my friend's writing this thesis, I'm his photographer, we need to photograph these birds. Because like I said, that's the only way you can view the Wallace Bird Collection is for legitimate research purposes. You can't just be like, hello, museum docent, I would like to see the birds. Hello, I would like to see the birds today, please. So uh, this is now, this is November 5th, uh, 2008. Um, November 2008, I was probably starting all of the projects that were due before Thanksgiving break that I had all semester to work on, but left until the last minute because I thrive on the adrenaline of last minute panic. That's what I was doing in November of 2008. <laughs> uh, but Edwin, he arrives at the museum with a camera. He signed the visitor's logbook using his own name <laughs> and was taken to the Birds of Paradise collection. Now, okay, here's some things. Um, if you've ever been to a natural history museum or like a college biology department that has uh, like ecology or bi animal biology classes, or I think our college had a few preserved bird specimens on display in the science wing. Yes. You know what research specimens look like and how they're like, they're, they're, cut, they're a little bit different from like run-of-the-mill taxidermy. Like they don't have like sculpted glass eyes. They really, it's more, if they're a, if they're a specimen, they've got like, just kind of cotton stuffed in there yeah uh the wing like their wings aren't like posed to look all real cool their wings are just like folded at their side their legs are stiff and extended and then all the legs have tags on them with all of the scientific and providence like metadata on it like it's they're like this is not for display this is like a scientific research specimen like we're like doing everything we can to make all of the information as accessible as possible uh and so the whole thing is referred to as a bird skin even though that includes like the body, the bones, the feathers, the beak, like, but they call them skins. 
But the okay. tags are what's most important because the tags include all of the data about the species, the date that it was captured, any relevant biological data, the provenance about what hands that specimen has passed through. And in the case of the bird skins in the Birds of Paradise collection, they have Alfred Wallace's signature because he's the one that wrote those tags. Oh. If, you, if you take those tags off of a bird skin, your specimen is no longer a specimen and it has no historical or scientific research because all of the information is now null and void because that information is gone. Now it's just a dead bird. That dead bird could have come from anywhere. Yeah, you could probably do testing on it and like like gene stuff on it and DNA stuff on it and like figure out where it came from. But that's going to take a lot of time and a lot of places don't have the funding for that so now they're just like cool a dead bird with no information about it thanks so like those tags are very important yes but this day in november he just photographed the bird skins like to his word he told the museum i'm here to take photos that's what he did he photographed as many different bird species as he could find he later said in an interview with kirk wallace johnson who wrote the book that he wasn't casing the collection definitely not not casing there's no casing happening He's casing the museum. <laughs> That's what he's doing. He okay. says he wasn't. He was. Later, when he was back in his flat, he sits at his computer to further plan his heisty plan. Uh, I got a lot of information in this from the uh, episode of the This American Life podcast that came out around the time that Johnson was publishing his book. And when Sean interviews Kirk Johnson about the research process of the book, and uh, Kirk was talking about how Edwin was planning the heist, Part of that plan was to include, he started typing in his computer a Microsoft Word document titled Plan for Museum Invasion dot doc. I'm sorry, what? The Word document that he wrote when he was planning his heist, he titled that document Plans for Museum Invasion. He wasn't the brightest tool in a shed. By all accounts, this guy was a genius. Like, he's, like, prodigy-level, like, musician, brilliant, just, I guess, common sense-wise. That's Like, he's like, what, I, what cover my tracks? Why? I'm not going to get caught. Uh, in this document, he then listed all of the things he was going to need to rob the museum. <laughs> to rob museum, bring with gloves, wire cutters, flashlight, glass cutter, <laughs> the fucking audacity. <laughs> So uh, now there's a little bit of gap in time. Um, June 23rd, 2009, about five months later. Uh, what he does uh, with his day is he plays a concert at the Royal Academy of Music. Uh, after the concert, he trades his uh, flute case for an empty suitcase. And then he boards a train to train carrying said empty suitcase, latex gloves, some wire cutters, a flashlight, uh, like a little LED flashlight and a glass cutter. As he approaches the museum, he found a window in a secluded area, used the wire cutters to clip some barbed wire to hop a fence to access said window. Uh, he then realized he had dropped his glass cutter somewhere during his approach. So he straight up just um, smashed the window with a rock. <laughs> He's like, ah, no glass cutter. What can I do? Ah, a rock, that'll work. Uh, is it now it's kind of important that the museum did have a security system like it involved an alarm system like a security guard and the alarm did go off when he smashed the window 
And there is some contention about why the guard did not respond to the alarm. Uh, some people say, like in the book, it says that the guard was watching a football game. The museum denies this. Uh, regardless, Edwin smashes a window, an alarm goes off, and then the guard does not respond to the alarm. And we don't know why. So he was undetected in the museum for at least an hour. His initial plan had been to be methodical, uh, take the best specimen, and to only take like one or two specimens of each species present. But now that he was here in the museum, and it's dark, and he has a tiny, weak little flashlight, and no idea when he might be interrupted by security, threw his plans out the window, just started grabbing whatever he could fit in the suitcase. Some specimens he just cleared out entire drawers of. Uh, Others... He, uh, there was one, the uh, red rough fruit, uh, he took 47 of 48 skins because he didn't see the last one in the very back of the cabinet tray because it was dark. He made off with 299 specimens, including 100 contigas, 47 red rough fruit crows, several capsules, which were larger and kind of required some feather curling to make them fit in the suitcase. Oh no. And uh, also included uh, several of the birds of paradise. And then he just snuck back out the way he came, walked back to the train station and headed back to London. In the morning, the broken window was discovered. Police were summoned. And then after the initial sweep, the museum staff and the police determined nothing was missing. Are you kidding me? Because uh, the museum had like on display, like in the museum proper, were Darwin's finches, which were objectively much more famous because Darwin, because Darwin was much more famous, like we said that, despite them co-authoring the theory of evolution and natural selection, Darwin is the famous one. So Darwin's finches were safe. No one stole Darwin's finches and they didn't check storage. Like they didn't even think to like look in storage because they're like, well, people don't go in storage. Why would we have to check storage? So... The theft went unnoticed for 35 days. Are you kidding me? 35 days. It probably would have gone unnoticed even longer had someone not, like, contacted the museum and, like, with the same, like, hi, I'm doing research and I would like to photograph your collection of the Wallace birds, please. And then they, like, absolutely, come on, show up on this date and you can photograph the Wallace birds. And then they opened the storage cabinet and went, whoa, these are empty. Someone stole 299 specimens from the collection and no one noticed for over a month because it wasn't Darwin's finches. Because he wore gloves and because the CCTV footage of the town of Tring resets after 28 days, there was almost no physical evidence beyond... Like he cut himself, like he cut himself a little bit on the glass. So like I think they have like a like a microscopic amount of blood evidence and like a piece oh. of the latex glove. Like the only clue that could have broken this case wide open was the visitor's logbook from November, where he wrote his full name. Oh God! And like, okay, and so the, the this American Life podcast episode has this great quote. They say. Had the police or museum looked in the visitor's log, they would have found Edwin's full name, which, if someone had Googled it, would have found edwinrisk.com, on which he was selling some of their specimens using their Latin names. They also would have quickly discovered that he played the flute, and if they had gone looking for birds on eBay or on the fly-tying forums, they would have found birds for sale from someone with the handle Flute Player 1988. <sighs> His eBay handle is how they ended up finding him. It just took longer than it reasonably should have because instead of like doing all that and being like, 
Ah, yes, check names from visitors' logbook who visited that specific collection. Background check those names. Find all of that above information that's immediately accessible and necessary, and use that necess- like that probable cause to bring him in. Um, they I didn't do that. I guess they just what happened is for about fifteen months, nothing happened until they got a tip from a different fly tire who had seen a bird skin at a fly tire festival in the Netherlands that looked like, hmm, that may have come from that museum collection that got robbed a little bit ago. And then they traced that acquisition back to an eBay listing by Flute Player 1988. And then that person forwarded all that information to the police who then went, ah, we should track this guy down now. So 15 months after the initial robbery, the police arrived at uh, Edwin's flat with a warrant. Uh, That's 15 months after the initial robbery. That is over a year. That is enough time to do irreparable damage to the collection he stole. Yes, it is. And, like, so they arrive at his flat. They're like, hey, we have a warrant to, like, search your flat. He just confesses immediately. It's just right there, like, the police in his doorway. He's like, oh, yeah, I was wondering when you guys would show up. Come on in. Come on into my bedroom. I will show you what has been happening to these birds that are now no longer complete birdskin specimens because the relevant feathers that you want to fly tie with have been removed, separated into Ziploc bags, while the rest of the skins were just, like, chucked into boxes. He also cut off all the provenance identifying tags, so they are now scientifically useless. Even if 100% of the specimens were able to be tracked down and recovered, they are scientifically and historically useless because he cut off those tags. And, like, he kept a fair amount of the feathers for, like, even, they'll never be tracked, like, none of them will ever be completely tracked down 100%. Like, he kept a lot of the feathers for himself because, obviously, he wants to use them to tie his own things. But he also sold a lot of them on the black market feather trades to fly tires who also insist on using authentic plumage for making uh, these original 19th century fly tying recipe. And then he was using that uh, money to um, think uh, send some of it he was using to send back to support his family who had lost a fair amount of money in the like the when everything like tanked and crashed in the early aughts, the recession that hit. Like yeah. his family lost some money in that. So he was using that. He also was saving up money to buy like a fancy flute made of gold or something because musicians do that, even though they've done studies that like a flute made of gold objectively, if you're good at playing the flute, sounds the exact same as just a regular run of the mill, like nickel flute. Like they sound, if you're a good flute player, they sound the same. But I don't know. I want a flute made of gold. <sighs> Most and then again, these these fly these nineteenth century fly tying recipes that people want authentic plumage for. Most feathers can be obtained legally, like through eBay sales of or through like like vintage thrifting. If you find Victorian hats and whatever, you can even like find some legally, like through donation of like some museum specimen donation. But there are a few from species that are protected or endangered. And so that's where the black market comes in. Uh, there are some Victorian flies that would require plumage worth more than $2,000 to be wound around a single hook. And a lot of these fly tires have no intention to ever use them outside of displaying them because a lot of them don't actually fish. They just are interested in the like the fly tying. Okay. 
So when he was brought to trial, Rist pled guilty to burglary and to money laundering. Despite like he like he never denied any of it. He's like, no, absolutely. I did it. I did all this. Here's how I did it. Here's like everything you need to know. Uh, despite this, he never saw any jail time. I'm he sorry. Re- what? I'm sorry. Received, what? Yeah. He received a suspended sentence because his lawyer argued that his diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome was to blame and that what he had done was simply try and live out, quote, a James Bond fantasy gone wrong. No. Okay. Now, and I, now I realize the side note. Um, I realized that uh, Asperger's is no longer used as its own as a diagnosis, that it is like now considered part of autism spectrum disorder, and that the namesake of it, Hans Asperger, his research was shaped largely by Nazi ideology. I, yes, <laughs> problematic, bad. Um, but that's the language that was used in 2009. That was the diagnosis that was still being used in 2009. And that was all the terminology they were used in the courtroom, which is why I included it in my notes. Um, but yeah, uh, so his all- lawyer argued, he's like, no, no, he can't be held responsible because of his neurodivergency, which is not okay. No, it's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. He served no jail time. He got to keep all the illicit money that he made with the specimens that he sold. He bought, he bought his fancy new flute. He returned to the Royal Academy of Music. He graduated from music school. He moved to Germany to avoid the press. He made all those cool heavy metal flute videos I referenced earlier. He largely avoided all interviews with the press until Kirk Johnson was finally able to sit down with him and interview him for his book, The Feather Thief. The Natural History Museum at Tring has since obviously beefed up their security measures. Hope so. And other than that, yeah, he decimated. There is now a huge irreparable loss to this like scientific specimen collection. There are huge gaps now in this in in our ability to like study these species and like what they would have looked like and now we like only have a few there are some like i said there are some that like he cleared out entire drawers of there are some that he only left like one or two behind or like he only left behind the the females of the species and the juveniles but not the males so now we like can only rely on illustrations and field journals and he just walked away. Like, he just walked away, never saw any consequences. But, yeah, that's the story of Edwin Rist and his feathery heist and how he just facilitated this huge loss of a huge chunk of naturalist history. And just no consequences and a new flute. Yeah. So that's McKay's. No murder this time. Just uh, righteous indignation and anger at the huge loss of history. Uh, as, a, as a historian, I'm I'm very upset right yeah. now. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I. This is another one that um I kind of ended up doing the same thing that I did for, uh, like Linda Hazard. Like I read about her, and then I started reading the book. But like I read Starvation Heights, and I was like, oh my god, this is amazing! I'm doing this. I'm like I'm halfway through uh Kirk jo- Wallace Johnson's book, The Feather Thief, right now. And I'm like, oh my god, this is so good. Ah, um. But yeah, like this whole time I'm typing out my notes, I'm like, I'm so angry. I'm so angry. Uh, My sources for this, uh, obviously the Wikipedia pages on Alfred Russell Wallace and the Natural History Museum at Tring. 
This American Life, episode 654, The Feather Heist. A 2018 article in Smithsonian Magazine, The Great Feather Heist, A Curious Case of a Young American's Brazen Raid on a British Museum's Priceless Collection by Franz Litz. 2018 article in the New York Times, The Man Who Stole Bird Feathers by Joshua Hammer. 2018 article in Fly Life Magazine, As It Turns Out, We Tires Are a Strange Lot by Skip Clement. A 2011 BBC News article, Natural History Museum Thief Ordered to Pay Thousands by an unnamed uh, BBC news writer. Uh, A Brief History of Fly Fishing from the Fishing Museum Online. And then The Feather Thief, Beauty Obsession and the Natural History Heist of the Century by Kirk Wallace Johnson. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Hey. Oh God, I just got so, so angry. And this, like I, I, like I said in that text, this raised the same amount of rage in me that I get when I think about the Library of Alexandria. Yeah, I'm feeling that way. I'm I have to dr- sad. I have to take a sip of my tea. My tea is probably cold now. Mm. No, lukewarm. Somehow worse. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. That was awful. Well, you're welcome. But like, no well matter. Yeah, well written and well executed uh, in the storytelling, but well, the story itself is awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're texting me, you're like, is it a bummer? I'm like, I mean, it's not a murder. <laughs> da, 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 the only da, thing that died here was history. The only thing to die is my soul. Just the idea that, like, he stole like the whole bird specimen and then just like yanked it because it's like it's effectively for these ties you want the tail fit like the long like the plumage you want the plumage feathers like you don't want like their all the rest of the feathers on their body so like he didn't have to steal the whole thing he could have just like grabbed the feathers and run and left like the rest of the skin that still had the tags on it and then they would have been damaged but they would have been like but we still have like all of the history and the this and the uh, we could kind of work with this maybe no he just like took the whole thing yanked out the feathers and then like chucked the thing in a box and was like man i'm done with you (sighs) all because he wanted like fly lures that he wasn't going to be using to fish because he didn't actually fish he wanted them to be historically accurate (sighs) i hate it so much i hate it so much but um i'm really enjoying uh kirk johnson's book (laughs) It's very well researched. He's very good at what he does. I am only like a third of the way through it. And I'm like, where are you going to go from here, man? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Anyway, this is, I guess, the season two finale. And we're both really angry. <laughs> Yay! And we hope you are too. <laughs> but not angry enough to not listen when we go back on the air and if probably i don't know a few weeks yeah we'll post a, a bonus episode yeah. uh announcing when the the season three is going to be when Yay. we talk about it i think that's a good idea but in the meantime you can find us places yes you can find us at uh if you, first off if you have questions comments concerns stories anything you want to tell us at all uh you can write to us at truly fabulously monstrous at gmail.com uh, we also have an Instagram, uh, truly fabulously monstrous, and we have a Twitter at tfabmonsterpod. Yay! So Yay. 
join us for it'll we'll have a bonus episode but then when we're back for season three season three ace will start off with a cryptid because we'll probably just continue yeah yay we'll be there we hope you will too Bye. bye